34 years strong. CIUT, the sound of your city. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show and this, I'm so excited about it, series that we're doing with activists. Uh, uh, not just any activists, not that there aren't a million incredible activists changing the world as we speak, but the ones who actually got laws passed, who actually you know, affected government and got government to do what they want. And that's what this learning series is really about. So uh, the hero today that we start out with is uh, none other than Dina Ladd. She is a labor organizer of 30 years. Uh, she's worked with workers in precarious jobs, racialized immigrant workers and women. And she's the executive director of Workers Action, has been since the inception of Workers Action. So Dina, thank you so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show. It's an honor. Oh, it's fabulous to be here and to, to yeah, be having a chat with you as well. Yes. So let's get into, let's get into Dina, first of all. So tell, tell the listeners, you know, where were you born? Um, what was your growing up like? Talk to, talk to us about little Dina. Okay. So uh, born in England in a place called Leicester in, in the East Midlands. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, nothing to really write home about, but I think the biggest issue was, um, you know, we're first generation British being South Asian. And so obviously uh, experienced a lot of racism growing up there and difficulties and watched, you know, my parents deal with that uh, playing out in their workplaces, and the sort of tension between the the sort of the, you know, I guess the British-born white people and and sort of how they were blaming immigrants for a lot of the issues. And so, even though I was born there, I was never seen as 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 a real British person. And so then, when I was sixteen, my um, this was under Thatcher. There was a massive uh, recession at that moment, and my dad had lost his job. He was a car mechanic and, um, you know, had a nephew in Toronto and sort of took a risk. Um, my parents, when I think about it, they're really quite risk takers because in some ways, um, you know, our family has sort of moved from India to East Africa to England, and then they decided to go to Canada. So I, you know, ended up in Toronto and then um, quickly, uh, I was 16, uh, then went to Ryerson um, at the age of 17, took the social work program there and discovered politics and Marxism and feminism and queer issues and, just kind of like uh, felt like I was home and started to sort of make sense of the world, especially around working class politics and racism and understanding what I'd been through in England. And then I guess the big thing for me was in my fourth year, I at Ryerson in the social work department, you have placements. And so under Ben Carniel, who was doing a bunch of labor placements, there was a placement at the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And the, you know, when you get that moment in your life and you realize, okay, it doesn't matter what happens, I have to make this happen. To me, it just felt like this was the place that I needed to be. And I ended up working there for seven years and as a union organizer. And so for me, it was um, a place where, you know, working with immigrant workers, racialized workers, a lot of women who were losing their jobs because of free trade, um, talking about workers' rights issues, that just felt like a natural coming together of, of a lot of what my family had been through, my identity also as an immigrant and dealing with my parents having to settle into a country where their skills and qualifications were also not being recognized. I mean, they were not highly skilled professionals. They were working people. My dad was a car mechanic, but came here and Apparently, cars are really different in Canada that you can't do work on cars in this country because 
my goodness, like they're different from the ones in, in England. So he ended up working as a shipper receiver in a warehouse and went from bad job to bad job to bad job and literally kind of went into, you know, a very stressful situation. And my mom also went from temp agency work to temp agency work. Um, at, that at that time, pl uh, factories and plants were shutting down and moving to the States because of free trade and then moving to Mexico. So she was laid off many times. So the whole thing like gout, you know, kind of corresponded with me working at this garment workers union. And it just felt like so my, my family, the people that I was working with, and trying to support um, were just, just grappling with how to make ends meet all the time and dealing with these new forms of work. And so I ended up leaving the union uh, in 97 and uh, then became, went on a path of starting to form the worker center and been, had been paying attention to the formation of worker centers in the United States. Um, if people know that in the United States, the unionization rate there is incredibly low. I think it's like between nine and 11%, whereas in Canada, it's about 30%. And so, you know, many unions were not organizing uh, immigrant racialized workers, and they were not paying attention to, um, you know, domestic workers, day laborers, taxi drivers, um, restaurant workers, you know, Silicon Valley manufacturing workers. And so there was this proliferation of a worker center movement in the United States. And in some ways, I, you know, there was a few of us that were paying attention to this in Canada because we were also seeing some, uh, many of the same trends in this country as well, where, you know, unions were deciding, well, we're not going to organize in the garment industry anymore. It is not worth our investment. Uh, those, you know, we're not going to put our money into this. We're going to just go for the large workplaces. We're going to go for those stable workplaces where we can get the, the dues back. But that meant abandoning the most vulnerable workers and many workers who were migrant and racialized and immigrant and who were newcomers. And of course, were women of color were in these more vulnerable jobs. So we really saw that there was like this place for a worker center to, to be a home and to be an organizing force to bring workers together who were being largely for the most part, being ignored by the broader union movement. And, and one of the things that's happened since then in the last 20 years is that you've seen the worker center movement in the United States become an incredibly massive force for change. Um, it has been a force for change to bring in rights for domestic workers, mainly black and Latina women. Um, we've seen uh, taxi drivers in New York, uh, you know, now forming unions, which are part of union federations of 15,000 members. We've seen national, statewide, uh, national and statewide worker centers um, now, uh, you know, creating forces around restaurant, the restaurant industry, the day labor industry, and, and in many other sectors. And that has been incredibly inspiring for someone like me to watch. And so has really been the fuel or the fire under my butt, I guess, to sort of feel like this, this is what we need to be doing here. And it is, and it has also proven that to be right, that, you know, if you focus on the workers in, in the labor market who have, who are the most uh, without protection and power. And if you start from there, and if you start with women of color, you raise everybody up. And that is the basis upon which, you know, we have really tried to focus our resources and energies of the Workers' Action Center, which we've now, you know, has now been in existence for 16 years uh, in Toronto. And, and we've managed to, I think, make a lot of legislative gains, um, you know, not just what we won in 2018, um, but but before that, and we have changed. I feel the conversation around what is happening around work, and and how we need to be organizing. 
Speaking here, uh, if you've just tuned in on the Radical Reverend Show to Dina Ladd, Executive Director of Workers Action, and we're talking about how to change governments, how to change laws. Um, so, so you've got us to the Workers Action Center. How is the Workers Action Center funded? You still have ties to the union movement though at Workers Action, right? No, not really. Um, the Worker Center has never really been funded by the union movement. I mean, we've had a little bit of support. Um, you know, we maybe get about $30,000 a year from various unions. And, but our, you know, 80, 85% of our funding comes from uh, family foundations, to be honest, with a social justice mandate. Um, and they have been absolutely incredible in supporting us to um, to understanding the way we want to organize our vision of trying to think outside the box, of trying to do things differently, of of wanting to take risks in in in, in establishing training programs for workers to learn how to organize, to invest in neighborhoods where there's a massive predominance of precarious employment and seeing that that is a, a worthwhile investment and that and 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 that whole notion that you know change doesn't just come overnight right like it's not like a six-month campaign that you you have your goals and objectives and then in six months did you achieve your goals and objectives and if you didn't well yeah just move on to the next issue i mean this is these are people's lives right like people's lives don't just change within six months um you know and and even if your campaign ends in six months it's still shitty right like it's still continuing so if you're really substantial like if you're really serious about cha making change like this is a, a, a long-term effort it means that this is going to be a struggle that is that is you're in it for the long term that is not just based on a campaign but it's based on building a movement and that movement has to be built by those who are directly impacted because this is not a charity, right? We're doing this to fundamentally change the system. And if those people who are who are directly impacted by crappy working conditions and low wages, if they're not prepared to fight for it, if they don't feel that this is something that speaks to them, that they're willing to get on the streets for, to actually make happen, then what are we doing? And we know, we've, we've learned through history, top-down campaigns do not work because they are being talked about in boardrooms and not being talked about on the streets and people don't own it and you can dismiss them and undermine them just like that. And so that is, um, that is, that is, you know, so I think for us, we wanted to do things differently and we didn't want to just sort of go from campaign to campaign to campaign. But what we wanted to do is say, you know, here is an umbrella of things that workers are facing. They're dealing with, you know, gaps in protection uh, of labor rights. They're dealing with lack of enforcement. They're dealing with low wages. They're dealing with, you know, the reality of the work that they're experiencing and not being protected in, in labor laws. And they're dealing with fundamentally immigration policies that force them into exploitative jobs where workers can get deported if they speak out. And so when you see that as the kind of you know, umbrella issues, then those aren't going to get fixed with a six month campaign or a one year campaign or even a two year campaign. This is long term building work to make a difference. And that I think is really proven for us in terms of how we've gotten to make legislative change the uh, one of the key strengths. Uh, speaking again to Dina Ladd here, ED of um, Workers Action. Uh, so a couple, so many questions. Um, I think I came uh, across Workers Action initially in elected office when you were really focused on temp agencies. Um, but I want to ask you: We've been, we've, we're still in COVID. Uh, we've been in COVID for a couple of years now. Um, and what strikes me as uh, as strange, I'll say strange, is the we should have had a general strike in this province. I can't think of a time in even history that I we can remember where so many workers have put their lives on the line in precarious jobs and essential jobs um, with so little protection. 
uh, even unionized workers. And now we're seeing the, you know, the schools going back and it's happening there too, uh, in healthcare, in long-term care, in schools, in your corner grocery shop, everywhere. And yet there doesn't seem to be a strike on the horizon. Uh, maybe you can talk about that a little bit before we get into, into the laws you have changed. I mean, I think it fundamentally speaks to, I mean, there's a lot in, in that question. I think, um, so a couple of responses I, I would say is that, I think on one hand it speaks to, uh, I think the, the model of unionization that is very present that where, you know, workers can be unionized in a union, but it's not it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a progressive politic there, right? That there is the kind of political education that is happening, that is talking about sort of, you know, um, the ability of workers to fight back and how important it is and, and to sort of, you know, be making a strong case and seeing that voice of change. In fact, I think one of the scary things that we're seeing is that, you know, there was very little voice by unions during the pandemic around what was actually happening to workers. And in fact, you know, in I would say that, you know, a lot of unions were pretty absent because they were just dealing with the day to day crises of members losing their jobs and, you know, not being at work or being at work and being those essential workers and trying to grapple with the pandemic on a daily basis, right? In terms of, you know, that whole trajectory when we started back in March of 2020 of, do you wear a mask at work or do you not, right? I mean, and now obviously, you know, things have changed. So, I mean, I think, so I think that that's one of, one reason. I think the lack of political education and mobilizing within unions is having a real impact on union members then seeing it as their responsibility as a working class to actually fight for these things, right? I think the other part of this is that, you know, I think a lot of a lot of us, um, a lot of workers were just really struggling to survive. And I think that, um, there was just a, I mean, I know for us at the Workers' Center, I mean, you know, we were dealing with workers who who were not in unionized environments, were, were basically, um, you know, had, you know, in the peripheral of, of labor standards, um, working for cash or misclassified or migrant workers were not going to get any of the benefits, emergency benefits, and then everyone was losing their jobs. And so it was a complete um, it was a very, very difficult time. And I, but I think what's been interesting for the workers that we're connected to is that very soon we started to see a lot of undocumented and migrant workers taking to the streets and pushing for status for all. And you, you didn't really see a lot of other workers doing that. And so we've seen workers you know, um, on farms and, and doing care work and cleaning and who are the ones that are going to get deported if they get found out. But their bravery and courage through the pandemic was was like totally inspiring. And I think um, we have seen more action on the streets in the last year at pushing for status for all across the country than we've ever seen before. And then a whole bunch of workers starting to make the connections between COVID and health and paid sick days. Again, really making the links between um, labor standards and public health standards and, and seeing that connection. And, and, and again, uh, taking to the streets in, in any way people can to push for paid sick days. And I think that that, have has been very inspiring um but yeah i mean i th i think the 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 question you ask is really a bigger question around do people actually see themselves as being part of a working class movement and i would say that for many union members that education hasn't been done but 
but that's what we're trying to do at the Workers Action Center, because I think it's it's about developing a culture of organizing, of critical reflection, of questioning, of, of trying providing spaces for all of us to understand what is happening in the world around us, because we are being pitted against each other so much. It's like, it, you know, it's like, well, those people are to blame or those people are to blame instead of actually understanding who has the power and who is making these decisions and who's being screwed. Right. And so where do you have those conversations? Right. Like, you, you know, social media has its limitations. And I, I could go on and uh, we, we could talk for another half an hour about where is the left as well. On this yeah, yeah. I mean, we think yeah. of why is the right wing among some working class, <laughs> not the left. But but I yeah. want to focus in on you talking to Dina Ladd here, Executive Director of Workers Action, um, because you have straddled what is often um, not straddled by activists on the left and working with workers. And that is between being in the streets, demanding, being noisy, getting out there, doing exactly what you've just described migrant workers doing, um, and also going into the halls of power in government, talking to politicians, getting politicians to do something, getting yeah. laws changed. Um, talk about that and talk about, uh, I, so, I often hear from politicians, yes, it's great to see all these great de demonstrations, but where are these people when we're at a committee or where are these people when there's a vote or where are these people doing that, you know, hard boring work of lobbying person by person, right? In someplace like Queen's Park or Parliament Hill. So talk about that. Why did you do both? And uh, yeah. Your experience? yeah, I mean, I, I really fundamentally think that, you know, if if you feel that responsibility to 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 change the situation, you do have to. Yeah, you, you have to do you have to use a range of tactics. Right. So it's not like you choose one or the other. You do it all. And I think for for us, it's it's been about and partly this was our own learning as well. Um, many of us, including myself, had never talked to a politician before I started at the Workers Action Center. I didn't know how to how legislation was formed. I didn't I'd never gone and spoken to my MPP about an issue that I felt strongly about and lobbied them or or got a petition signed on the streets. I mean, this was all something that I think we all I think our our mentality was we are prepared to do everything to get these issues listened to. So if it means doing a traditional Queens Park lobby, fine, let's learn how to do that and let's figure it out because we don't know how to do it. So let's 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 do it, right? Because we didn't know. And if it means that we have to visit every MPP in, in, in Ontario, um, let's do it. And so what, what happened, what we found was that, um, you know, you can't organize massive demonstrations every weekend, right? Like it's just not possible. But what you can do is you can you can do you can have those moments where you need to collectively feel the strength and power of your movement. But what do people do meanwhile? If they if they happen to be working that day when the rally happened, then what? Are they are they out of luck for another year? I mean, that's literally how people have been doing their campaign work. So if you break things down, if you if if you start to understand that part of this is is that you know you can't just have a few people doing all the work. So how are we training people to speak to their politicians in their neighborhood? How do we make sure that that constituency office in there, you know, around the corner, that they feel absolutely comfortable going to and demanding what their rights are? But how do you do that? Well, you do it by, by going and knocking on the door and asking for a meeting. And then you do it by then prepping for that meeting and then you do it by debriefing and going, well, that didn't go very well. <laughs> How should we do it next time? And then you organize your next group of people and do it this, you know, at the same thing. And so all of this stuff has been organically learned by us. We've we've learned it by trial and error and realizing like, oh, so that's what they do in the meetings. They get as distracted and they, you know, start saying, like, I remember going into a meeting with a group of women from Regent Park, and, and I won't name the politician but you know talking about the lack of decent jobs and that politician said you need a job 
I will make sure each one of you in this room has a job. Come to my office next week and I will I will contact the employers. And, and so, so we were like, what? <laughs> so, but, but that's the thing, it becomes an individual thing. It's like, okay, if I make sure you're okay, then you're not gonna bother me again. And so the women were like in debriefing it, they were like, what just happened there? Like, they're like, did, did he just promise me a job? And then they're like, but what about all the other women in the community? And so then we're like, yeah, like, what about the women in the community? They're like, what? So if we just keep bringing women from the community to meet with this politician every week, is he going to promise everyone a job? And then, you know, so, so it's all of those experiences, like where you're, you're teaching people to sort of speak to their experiences in the workplace how they're being impacted what they what policy change would actually make a difference to their lives like paid sick days like you know full-time work like being able to have equal pay for equal work a higher minimum wage and for people to start to understand that when they talk about these things that they have the power that originates from their own experience and and no one can take that away right and i think you know a lot of folks don't understand the power of that and so i always say to people like you know politicians can can you know roll their eyes when they see me but when you stand in front of them and you say i went to work and i'm still owed five thousand dollars in unpaid wages and I've been waiting two years and the government has done nothing about that. They have to deal with you. Right. And so that's the power of your experience. And not to say that it just stops with individual experiences. It's about being relentless. It's being about showing the politician in their neighborhood that this is not just one bad apple of a company, but that this is a systemic issue. So why don't you go talk to your neighbors? Why don't you? And then, oh, you got 200 people to sign that wage theft, uh, you know, uh, petition. Well, go take it and give it to that politician to know that 200 of his potential voters have just signed this petition. So those were just some of the tactics that, you know, we used and we found the power of that, which led to stronger and stronger sense of, of of then speaking to the media and then pushing for the legislation that people wanted. Uh, so we've only got four minutes left. This is what it's like talking to activists with passion. Um, so quickly, we want, I really want to talk about the 15 and Fairness campaign and the fact that you won it. Um, uh, yeah, we know Doug Ford rolled, rolled it back in Ontario, but you won it. Uh, let's, let's live with that for a minute. Um, how, and I remember because I was there for part of it, um, even I thought the Liberal government's never going to do this, uh, and they did do it. So tell me how. Uh, tell our listeners how. Go for it. So, so I just say, I would say that it took a long time. <laughs> it, it took years, uh, but I think the thing was, was that what we realized was that we needed it to be provincial, so not just to stay in Toronto. And so... We, when we pushed for $14, and this was back in, in, in 2013 and 2014, we were pushing for a $14 minimum wage. We realized that what groups in little communities like in Sudbury and, and Windsor and Hamilton wanted was, you know, they could, they could bring together 20 people, but they needed the materials, they needed the support. And so what we did was we built an infrastructure right across the province of local groups in, in, in cities across the province to be active in the campaign and to be part of a growing movement and to try to uh, put together a politic that, that was built on unity of bringing people together. So the 15 and Fairness had an agenda for change that people could see themselves reflected in, right? Whether, they, I mean, they could be making $18, but the agenda also included paid sick days. It also included decent hours, equal pay for equal work, easier to unionize. 
And so I think it was about trying to bring union and non-union workers together. It was about trying to provide ways that no matter, even if you were a group of five people and you're in a little town, you could be part of a movement, right? That, that, that there was a place for you and there was a home. And how could we support you to be involved in that, right? And so it was, um, so really trying to encourage capacity building, skills training, sharing of information, and then just doing the work step by step, bit by bit, and building our confidence and building everybody else's confidence and then just being relentless and just being relentless and not not listening to people who said, oh, you know, the liberals have said eleven dollars is as far as they're going to go and you should just stop. And we were like, oh, well, why don't you go and tell that minimum wage worker that that's your po political position, because we're not certainly going to do it. We believe a minimum wage should bring people out of poverty. And so I think if your if your campaign is is built by workers themselves who are directly impacted because all of those demands and you know are were were pulled together from our membership at the workers action center where people debated should it be 14 should it be 15 should it be 20 you know and what what did we agree on and so there was a real commitment by our membership that this was the agenda and 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 we just launched a new campaign this past may called justice for workers and it's a 20 dollar minimum wage and again went through that whole process again and i think if you're rooted with workers who are directly impacted by the struggles that you're dealing with and who are part of fighting it and thinking it through um that is that puts wind in your sails like nothing else Absolutely. Um, but I, like all activists who've been successful, you're also, Dina, incredibly humble because it was your face often and workers with you, but your face that trudged those halls of Queens Park and visited and lobbied. So we thank you for that. And we thank you for this time. Uh, wonderful to speak to you. Good luck with the $20 campaign and justice thank you. campaign. Um, and uh, we know you'll be successful because you have been and you always are. So keep on keeping on. Thank you so, so much. Thanks, Sherry. The sound of your city. CIUT 89.5 Toronto. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. And as you know, we are doing this series on activists who actually change laws and policies because that's so important. It's really important to translate the passion from activism, and that can mean being on the streets and feeling strongly about issues, to actually uh, making a difference in people's lives. And, and that takes some changing of laws to, to make that real. Uh, so our second guest today is Rai Schisler, and Rai is the uh, communications manager for Cycle Toronto. Um, they have been incredibly effective at getting what is a core environmental issue um, active around and, and politicians doing something around it, and that is cycling. Um, we certainly know that in Canada, uh, one of our major problems is getting people out of their cars in terms of meeting our even global emission standards. Uh, and this is one way we can do it in cities. So I'm gonna be talking to Rai about that. And Rai, you're here. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Sherry. So let's start at the very beginning of Rye. Um, you, where did you, where were you born? Where did you grow up? And why cycling? Uh, well, that's, that's a lot. I, I grew up in a small town in Michigan and uh, I immigrated to Canada. I wanted to come to the big city and learn and grow and find a place where I could fit in. It's, uh, it's tough being uh, like a trans non-binary kid in a small town. And uh, when I came to Toronto and started settling in here, uh, the debt I incurred paying for my education and you know, all the paper processing I had to do to become uh, come live here uh, far outpaced the income I could make working three jobs at the time. And I couldn't afford a Metro Pass, much less a car or parking. So took up cycling. That was my way to save money. And through the years, I, I, I did save that money, but I found it helped my mental health so much just being on the road and helping deal with uh, my life's issues. And I got healthier physically too. 
And those were just you know, side effects of saving money, which was kind of great for me. And then I uh, wanted to help other people have those same things. I wanted like, even if they could get a fraction of the benefit that I did, that's what I wanted. And that's why I got involved with Cycle Toronto. And now what were you why... studying? Wait, what were you studying at university? Did you <laughs> that? Did that tie in at all? Or um, In a sense, like I was studying, I, I took film studies, which is like a cultural studies degree focused uh, exclusively on film. And then I spent 10 plus years working in uh, broadcast television and uh, wanted to do something more valuable with my time, something that I could come out at the end of the day and know that I'm, I'm helping people or at least doing my best to help people. And, and there are other cycling organizations. Yours has been particularly effective. Why Cycle Toronto? What drew you to them? Um, opportunity, really. Like, it, it, Cycle Toronto uh, has an outsized presence for for who they are. There's only six staff members, but we we have you know thousands of members, uh, twelve people on our board, uh, hundreds of volunteers, and that was the easiest way for me to get involved and have the most effect was to join the largest organization, and uh, they were the ones that I most frequently saw getting stuff done so you you've learned how to do that but I mean I like it's phenomenal what you've got done and uh you, we were speaking just before this interview started about some of these things I remember being a um, politician myself you know working around the one meter rule which is just giving cyclists some room on the road so that you know you're not crowding them and pushing them off their bikes unsafely uh, but you also mentioned you know uh dooring as a collision um issue um and then municipally bike lanes e e you know e-cargo bike uh, you know legislation uh, increasing fines um uh you know speed enforcement for cars um and then preventing laws that discourage uh cycling so there's a whole lot of policy and law that you have changed um, so let's start with one, because I, I mean, this is kind of very close to home for a lot of people that live in big cities and in this big city for sure. Um, and that's bike lanes. I mean, it seemed impossible years ago to have such a thing, you know, I mean, we, we, we did have some white lines on streets, but to have actually designated bike lanes that had some barriers just seemed like it was never going to happen. So maybe walk us through if we want to use that test case or, or pick another one, but that kind of springs to my mind was what are the steps from this is what we need from your cyclist community to getting the policy change and getting it done? I think the, the most important step before you even have those conversations with uh, like politicians is getting support in the community and finding the people in the community that support this and finding the people that might be on the edge and talking to them and hearing about what their concerns are and figuring out a way that you can find something that works for everyone. And like we do that through uh, like some of it's just standing out on the street and getting people to sign petitions, but it's also uh, doing outreach and teaching people how to ride bikes and producing educational materials because the number one reason we are told uh, we don't ride bikes is because of a safety concern. And uh, so bike lanes is, is just one way to address that concern. And, uh, <clears throat> Increasing that support for bike lanes is, uh, is, is the most important thing we do from the beginning. And then we take that group of people, that, that coalition we formed uh, with other organizations as well. And then we talk to, talk to city councilors, we talk to city staff, and we work out how we can achieve these things uh, and not disrupt people's lives in a negative way uh, because you know, in the end, riding a bike is good for you. Uh, it's good for the environment. It's good for you know, saving money. It, it's good for so many things. And that's what we want. It's, it's not necessarily about the bike lane or about the safety. It's about doing the things that enable people to 
do the things they want, which is ride a bike. And we know so many people would ride bikes more if they felt safe. So, so you get people to, you're standing on a street corner. So I want to really deep dive into this. You're getting people to sign commissions, uh, uh, petitions. Um, you're also, of course, using their contact information to let them know educationally and, you know, meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so from that base, so then you can, you can, go to a city staff person. I mean, usually you're going to be dealing with staff person before you're dealing with an elected representative, I assume, and say, we've got this many names on a petition and we've got this many memberships. This is what our membership is saying. Is it, is it the numbers that impress the politician? Like, what do you say to them to get, what do you say to the staff person to get in the door in the very first place? Yeah. Uh, to, to some extent, um, like a long time ago, in a galaxy far away when we were just talking about bike lanes on Bloor and that was like our premier campaign and there were no bike lanes on Bloor. It was like, we have this many thousand signatures, we have this many thousand members and please listen to us, please have a conversation with us. And now that we spent years doing that and opening those doors, uh, and 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 having those conversations, it, it's more open to us now. It's easier to get in without necessarily having that thousands of people. People are listening to us now, and, and it's important that we wield that wield that power, that limited amount of power we have, uh, re responsibly. And that's why we keep on having these conversations. We keep on checking in with people to make sure that this is what they want. Um, I'm sure you heard from staff before you even met politicians um, in, in early days of, of getting some um, cred on these issues uh, about, you know, how difficult, sometimes I'll even use the word impossible, how difficult it is to do these things. How there's no money. I mean, think of, so what are the objections? You know, I always say like, you need to make the politician your friend. And you're also, it's, this is kind of a sales call. Like, what are the objections to what you're asking for? Um, um, so what, what would be the standard objections to any of the things, any of the safety measures you're asking for from politicians? Um, generally, like for, for, for the, the biggest issue is, is money and staffing that, that like, we will, we can talk to the most supportive staff ever. And they're just like, we would love to do all of this stuff. And they're just but like, we have X number of staff and we can do X number of bike lanes and we have a priority list. And then, you know, a politician steps in and says, I don't want it in my neighborhood. I've heard bad things about it or, but we're, we're always asking the staff, like, how do we, how do we get you more resources? Because if they want to do it and we want them to do it, it's about talking to the staff and like uh, the elected officials and getting people to, email John Tory and be like, uh, for the next bike plan, let's, let's fund more. Let's, we need to do twice as much. We need to be able to hire staff. It's not uh, necessarily about putting bike lanes on floor. It's about allowing staff to put bike lanes where they need to be. So, so, you know, do it like, again, this, this kind of outside in pressure on folk in terms of the numbers of emails, petitions, et cetera. But, um, but a lot of people, you know, when you talk about activism with people, they're saying, but, you know, um, just me or like, I just want to see my local representative. I've signed the petitions. Um, does it help you that, uh, that just individuals will just call up? Do you do like sort of general calling, that kind of campaign? What kind of campaigns do you run to, to get that pressure to the point where, you know, politicians feel like they have to do something or should do something, right? Sometimes all it takes is one or two people affirming what the politician already knows. We, we have a, a pretty broad email list um, and we'll, we'll send out an action alert and say, this is happening in your neighborhood. Uh, can you just email your counselor and say you support it? And a lot of times like there's concern that like, the, the squeaky wheel is the one that gets it gets stuff done and uh you know there there are people who would have who are opposition who just want things to stay the way they are because they built their lives around that and and we get that and it's about making sure that they're hearing the voices of the people who want change as well and 
we can present data and, and the the politicians do listen to that. Like we'll do a poll and say like 90% of people in Toronto want protected bike lanes. But if all they're hearing is an email or a phone call from their constituents saying, I don't want bike lanes, uh, that negates any data we have. And so, so the big part of what we do is just getting at least one or two people to call in and say, I love it. Let's do it. Let's do more. Uh, this is going to make my life better. And that, that often gives the politician confidence to go through with what they, what they know is right. It's nothing like hearing from somebody who can vote you in or out of office <laughs> to make a difference someday. Yeah. Um, I'm talking to Ry uh, Schisler here, and uh, he is the communication manager for Cycle TO. And we're talking, of course, here on the Radical Reverend Show about how to change laws and influence people, basically, how to get stuff done, right? Um, uh, how to kind of get activism from the streets into where the laws are going to change and make a, a real difference for, for a lot of people. Um, you talk about action alerts around you know, days. I mean, uh, I mean, it's been a sea change for cycling in, in this city. I mean, this city is kind of a petri dish for, for cycling um, change, I think. Uh, I mean, just it seems like in a very short period of time, which may be 10 years, um, we've just done a, you know, it's a, it's a completely different, um, completely different mood around cycling. Do you, do you, so, and you have been played a phenomenal part in that. So thank you. But um, so do you feel that too? Does it feel, does it feel good what you've accomplished? You feel like you've accomplished a lot. It, it does, but I, I live downtown, uh, I, I just a couple blocks away from uh, your church. And it, it when, when people come to visit, they're like, oh, Toronto's such a great cycling city, but uh, Toronto is so much more than downtown. And we, we have gotten a lot of stuff done downtown and there's very much a culture of cycling and walking places downtown. But the moment you step uh, into Etobicoke or North York or Scarborough, which are all still Toronto, it's that, ne that network, that culture of cycling is there. And um, as an organization, we're, we're only just in the first stages of working to build that and connect with people out there. And that needs to be done because uh, you know, we can't we can't just leave these parts of the city behind, especially like the low income parts. Like I when I wasn't living downtown when I started commuting, but I was riding my bike, you know, 10 kilometers downtown every day on roads that didn't have bike lanes that didn't have anything. I was just I had no choice. I was putting my life on the line every day just to save a few dollars so that I could get to work. And there are people all over the city doing that. And we need to support them. We need to make these options available so that they can choose to drive or they can choose to ride a bike or take transit no matter where they wanna go or what they wanna do. Now you're talking about a suburban urban divide. Uh, I'm, I'm very aware too, having been a provincial politician that there's quite a rural <laughs> urban divide as well uh, maybe uh, talk about talk about you know riding a bike in the country if you're living in a small town because i mean i just it shudders i shudder to think of like riding a bike along some of those highways um uh you know we, let's talk about that but also more the mindset because when you're dealing especially with provincial legislation you're dealing with politicians who represent those areas who, where this seems just like a foreign concept. Um, and yet they're being asked to vote for a bill around a one meter rule or enduring collision. Talk, talk about that. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's like, as you've said, it, it's a different level of involvement because uh, like our prerogative at Cycle Toronto is just the borders of the city with some interaction with the, the neighboring municipalities. But then, you know, federal legislation and provincial legislation all have an effect on how our roads are used and, and what laws are being enforced. So when it comes to like getting Say, say, like, I, I cycle a lot outside of the city limits just for pleasure. Uh, and cycling infrastructure 
on a country road might look very different than it would in, in the city. And it might just be a wide paved cleared shoulder somewhere that you can get out of the traffic because we realize people aren't typically riding their bikes a hundred kilometers in one go. Um, but when you're, you, you have to find those supportive local count, uh, MPPs or MPs and, uh, get a hold of them, the, the people who, who do represent you, and talk to them and find out where they agree with you and what they don't agree with you on and get them to leverage their contacts outside of your area. Because uh, we, we can talk, I can talk to my MPP uh, or our organization can, but that's one out of many. And they need to explain that like, uh, having a safe place to ride your bike is important in Toronto, just like it's important in Thunder Bay. And they're not the same city. They're not the same people living there. And our, our circumstances are different. But being safe on the road and having a choice of how you get places is important no matter where you live. Um, one of the concerns, and you said it up front, um, uh, talking again to Riot Schisler here of uh, Communications Manager for CycleTO, incredibly efficient organization that really grew just out of activism, right, right? Um, to uh, change um, one of the key environmental issues really in city living, and that is how do you get around? Um, and that's advocating cycling. Um, and, and and talking to you, like I, I'm, I'm sort of aware still that, uh, you know, getting to the getting to the politicians is an important aspect of what you do in terms of, of changing this. What, like, how do you find champions? How do you, how do you do that? Like I, you, you know, you may live in an area um, here and the show goes Buffalo to Barry and Kitchener to Coburg. Um, you, you may live in an area where you don't have a supportive MPP or city councilor. What do you do um, when you want to advocate for cycling? I mean, in that area, I know that you're focused on Toronto GTA generally, but um, what have you learned in terms of approaching pol politicians generally to find somebody who's going to give you an ear? It's it's that they are listening. Um, no matter how much they disagree with you, they care. Uh, like. That that's that's what I've discovered in, in, in my role. Like that, like you, even the politicians that are reluctant to sit down with us and have a, a fifteen minute meeting, uh, they care when people email them. They care when people call them, and not speaking up is is the biggest hindrance you can have to your cause. Um, and just be polite, be nice, tell them your story, tell them. This is how it is now and uh, what it feels like. The feeling is very important and tell them what you think can be changed and what would the outcome be? How would you feel afterwards? Tell a story. Just like the Lord of the Rings is a story of walking from one place to another and throwing a ring in a, in a volcano. Uh, but it's, it's, in, it's the feelings of the beginning, the middle, the end that matter. It's, who the people are involved. Um, so, so important. Uh, again, we're talking about activism here and how to be effective at, at changing laws. Um, and one of the things I found as a politician was I relied on people like you on various issues to educate me about it too. Um, and to educate me about how I could be effective in getting it pushed forward because you've had experience doing it, right? So, so if you, so maybe talk about that because often politicians don't, feel their own power. They don't, you know, they're, they're under a party thumb or they're you know, under other pressures from other people. And um, do you find that you have to say, well, now the first thing you need to do is this, or can I help you do this? Or can, when can you get it to the committee? Or when is the committee? Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. Do you do that a lot? We do. We, 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 we do. Uh, we, we do, uh, especially with uh, newer politicians who are who've just been elected and want to be involved with what we we are, uh, we'll we'll say like we we want this to go to the next committee meeting. Uh, we need you to uh, we we need you to make the motion to do it because we're not on the committee. We weren't elected, and then we'll have a conversation about 
uh, wording and what it actually means and what we actually want to get done and what they're comfortable with. And, you know, that also necessitates compromise because we can't, uh, we, we don't dictate what happens in the city and or the province or the, or the federal government. We, we can, all we can do is ask and we can make reasonable requests and finding that compromise of, okay, it's not 100% of what we get, but if we push for 100% of what we want, we're going to get nothing. Uh, so 90% is not bad. And then we can work towards that 10% later and talk about it once, uh, you know, once a bike lane has gone in and people are like, oh, this is pretty nice. Uh, I, it wasn't the end of the world. I can still get places and, uh, you know, it's calmer and quieter in my neighborhood. And then we're like, okay, uh, a year later, let's let's make an improvement to it. Yeah. Do you find that actually being, if there's a public you know, option to watch a committee or to be at a committee, does that help? Like just so they know that you're there um, and that they're, you're following this along through, does that help? If there is the opportunity to depute, to actually say something at the committee, so helpful um, because Cycle Toronto or one of our representatives can show up to every single one of these meetings and they know what we're going to say. They know we're going to say, yes, bike lanes. Uh, we want safety. We want people to ride bikes. Let's do this program. Uh, but when just some person who says, I, I live three blocks away, I, I want this done. I want this thing in my neighborhood shows up and they tell their story. And it, all it takes is, you know, waiting around for an hour, perhaps for your five minutes uh, on camera. But even if you're not great at telling a story, just showing up and saying something matters and getting people to the table who aren't the same people who are always showing up, finding the people who, you know, work shift work or have kids at home that they have to take care of getting those people out there is even more important than having the dedicated advocates like myself uh, show up to these meetings. And that's something that you do, which is part of activism, effective activism, I think. Um, I, I want to ask the obvious question in the few minutes we have left is, you know, what about the frustrations? <laughs> like, what about when it all goes wrong? You know, what about... Um, I mean, what about when you get real pushback from a street or a community? Let, let's stick with the bike lane issue for now. And just saying, you know, um, we don't want them. Um, they get to their whatever local organization they can get to, to you know, throw, throw, throw that out. Um, what do you, like, just, you know, what keeps you going? What keeps you going through that? And, and what obviously gets you to win in, in most of those situations? And if we're talking about bike lanes in Toronto, well, what keeps us going is when, when people tell us that they support us. I, I mean, occasionally I'll just get an email to my inbox saying, you're doing a great job, keep it up. And that, that really matters to me. But also we need to recognize that sometimes we've failed. Uh, we haven't done, we, we haven't done enough and uh, learning from that so that, and, and using it as, as a teachable moment as opposed to just you know, tearing my hair out and being like, what went wrong? Uh, this is never gonna happen. Uh, like for instance, uh, through Active TO, bike lanes were put on Brimley in Scarborough and uh, we weren't really prepared for that we weren't able to do the outreach necessary to get the community on side. And uh, we, weren't, we weren't there. We didn't have the connections necessary to get that support. And we're, we're learning from that and trying to change the way we do things to uh, organizational support, that community support prior to things happening, because this, that was something that was like out of left field for us. We didn't know it was necessarily coming or coming that quickly um so we weren't really prepared and it's it's about you know engaging with the community and bringing those voices in who aren't us and enabling them to you know advocate for themselves 
So uh, we've just got like two minutes left, Rye. Uh, what's on the horizon for you? What's next? What's the, what's, what do you, what's the big push now in terms of legislation around cycling? Well, the, the big push in Toronto is uh, all of the active or almost all of the active TO bike lanes are up for uh, debate. Uh, they could get pulled out uh, by the end of the year if it's not passed in December by council. And we're also looking forward to the cycling, the next near-term implementation plan for the cycling network. So that's three years of this is what's going to happen. These are the things that city council needs to approve, where bike lanes are going to go. And we're trying to get enough funding and enough uh, lines on a map that uh, it can help everyone in Toronto. So what? Uh, just part of me. Part of me <laughs> it, it, what it, the it, bike lanes could that, come that, out. That, that yes, yes. The active TO, uh, all the all the around twenty kilometers of bike lanes they put in last year, uh, they're temporary. Danforth bike lanes are temporary. Uh, Young bike lanes temporary. University temporary. Uh, Huntingwood and Scarborough, Wilmington and North York temporary. Uh, if those don't pass, they're going to tear them out of the ground. <laughs> So there's there's some marching orders for you out there in listener land. <laughs> you got to get busy, keep those, and make them permanent, and in fact, add more. Right? That's yeah. what we. Yeah, need. that's what we're working towards. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, Ryan, to have you on the show, and uh, and keep cycling on um, to all of you out there. And and you know, no, yes, you can win. You could. Like, I've, you've done phenomenal work, and and we all thank you for that. Till next time on the Radical Reverend Show.